0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Morning, everyone. Christmas is this one Christian festival, this one Christian feast that the whole world wants in on. Everybody wants In on Christmas. And so we enter the season of feasting, which is a discipline of Jesus' life, and we have a festival dedicated to the birth of Jesus' life on earth, and the whole world is joining in. And so, what that tells me is this is an opportunity. It's a season of opportunity to be able to share this story of the gospel. And so, we've got a non seeking world. And this is an opportunity for those seeking him to find him. But my question is this morning, the the thing I want to get into this morning, because many of us over the holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or, or in the lead up to Christmas, are going to be spending time with family, friends, co-workers at Christmas parties and different things. But we'll be spending time with people who are not only spiritual seekers, but most people are not actively seeking Jesus at all. Most people are simply not seeking. And so my question this morning is, how can we help people who are not seekers become seekers? Because a lot of evangelism techniques or those kinds of things, they they assume a seeking audience. (laughs) The problem is most people aren't seeking. So how do you help someone become a seeker if they're not? And one of the most scriptural and important ways that we see is actually, it's not necessarily through street preaching or Billy Graham crusades. That's only a few people that are able to do those kinds of things. Most of what we see Jesus doing actually is this art of conversation. The art of conversation. And so this morning I want to examine two conversations that Jesus has in the book of John. That his conversation partners enter not as seekers, but they leave as seekers. So this is going to be in John chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to see how these two people begin a spiritual journey of seeking Jesus as a result of these conversations. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John uh, chapter 3. And... Here we find Jesus. We're going to read a section of chapter 3 and then a section of chapter 4. And we're going to see Jesus having two different conversations with two different people who couldn't be more different from one another. So let's begin from verse 1 in chapter 3 of John. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next verse is probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so this is Jesus' first conversation. And I want to skip now to uh, chapter 4, where Jesus goes on to have another conversation. So we're going to begin from 4, verse 4. And it says, And he had come to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sichar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of God. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with the book of John, you you will have read these conversations before and have noticed that these could not be two more different people. So you've got Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler. He's a man first of all, of privilege, of power. And then in chapter 4, you've got a Samaritan woman. She's, she's not even named. She's a social outcast. There's lots of cues in the text that this is a woman that was outcast from society socially. Not only that, but she's a religious outcast from the point of view of the Jews. And so, a lot of times we deal with these conversations separately, but I think it's very intentional that John, as the writer of this book, puts them one after the other. And it's such a strong contrast that he's clearly got a point that he's trying to illustrate by putting these two conversations together. And I think this is the point, that every person you encounter is on a spiritual journey. Every person you encounter is on a spiritual journey. And so I I really want to... I want to delve into these two conversations to find out some, some principles, some, some practical things even to shape our mindset in having conversations and in sharing the hope that we have in Jesus conversationally with the people that, that we cross paths with in life, all right? And so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to give you a formula, I'm not here to give you technique, I'm here to introduce you to the art conversation as Jesus practices it. Okay? And so the first point here, yeah, every person you encounter is on a spiritual journey. And I think a lot of times our tendency is not to think of it that way. A lot of times our tendency is to think in terms of categories or camps. So you have Christian, -Christian. non-Christian. In chapter four, it was Jew, Samaritan two different camps, two different categories. Saved, not saved. Believer, unbeliever, right? And so what happens when you think in those, in that kind of binary way, is that you reduce a person's story to just a camp, which is not actually an accurate reflection of their life, of what's going on. And so I think it's actually more helpful, it's more biblical even, to think of each person as being on a spiritual journey. Each person being on a journey. And someone that has written particularly helpfully on this is one of my old professors, Oz Guinness. So I'm leaning a lot on some of his uh, writings on this, this art of conversation. So if you want to get a whole lot deeper into each of these things that we're going to cover. You can read his books, Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion, and the book, The Long Journey Home. All right? And so one of the things that he says is that rather than trying to think of ourselves as getting people from one camp to the other, necessarily, we should think of ourselves as becoming trustworthy guides on this journey, on this spiritual journey. And what he says is, often, that's really important in a person's life because most of the time, trusting a Christian is the prelude to trusting Christ. And so, every person is on a journey traveling in a certain direction. And so, I mentioned, like, your, your standard forms of evangelism that you tend to think of. Well, Street preachers or classical evangelists would be often preaching a message, repent, repent, turn around, right? And so that's a message that actually reaches people at a certain point on their journey. It reaches people at a certain point when they're ready to hear that. It's typically a person who's at a moment in life where either suffering or dissatisfaction— has opened them up to considering a different way. And when you're in a moment like that and you hear the message, repent, you're at a moment where you're considering changing directions. And so when you're at that moment and you hear that, you become a seeker. But the question this morning that I have and we're trying to get into here is, what about most people who are perfectly happy with their direction? Most people um, who are not particularly thinking of turning back or turning around or turning anywhere, but where they've already determined to go. How can we help them become seekers? All right? And I, I want to suggest that these are exactly the types of people that Jesus meets in these two conversations. And You say, well, didn't Nicodemus come to Jesus? Well, he did, but just look at what Nicodemus says, Okay? He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one can do these things that you do unless God has sent him. And I, I, what I hear in Nicodemus' approach and his, his tone, I think, is pretty similar to what your average American typically thinks of Jesus, all right? Most people, if, if you look at the survey studies, most people in this country uh." have heard of this name of Jesus. They know who he is. And they're generally, generally respectful of him. They have a vague notion that he's sent from God. And actually, they even largely have cultural, moral assumptions that are pretty similar to Jesus, like, like Nicodemus did. And even when you look at studies, even the majority of people who dislike the church or dislike Christians, even who dislike God like Father God, still have a pretty positive view of this person, Jesus. And so, I think what's happening is, like Nicodemus, they look at the quality of his life, and they can't help but respect him. This is a person, if you know anything about Jesus at all, that this is a person who is respectable, worthy of admiration. And so, okay, you've got Nicodemus. He's a good, educated, respectable member of the establishment. And then you fast forward to the woman at the well. And she's absolutely none of these things, right? These are two ends, extreme ends of the social spectrum. And I think the point that John is making by by putting these two stories together, I think the point that John is making is most people would look at Nicodemus and think, this is a man who's close to God. And they would look at the woman at the well and say, this is a person who is far from God. And, And John is saying, they are both far from God. They are both far from God. And actually, the person that you would assume is further is really no further at all than Nicodemus is. And maybe she might be a little bit closer. <laughs> but the point is, both of them are stuck in unbelief. Just coming from different angles, different directions. And you say, well, how can that be? All right, well, the first principle I want to give us as, as to, to, to think as guides on a spiritual journey is we need to know something about the nature of unbelief, which is this, that unbelief involves the choice to remain lost. It involves choice. Now, on the surface, that sounds a little bit harsh. But actually, when you, when you read the full picture of Scripture, it tells us unbelief is not just a neutral state. It's something that actually we participate in. Well, how so? If you read on from Jesus' conversation, we stopped in verse 15, but if you read on with Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, He goes on to say this, all right? So I'm going to read from verses 16 to 20 of chapter 3. Jesus says very famously, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now listen to this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wickedness, there's something really important to come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And there's something really important to see here, all right? Is that there is a willfulness involved in human unbelief. And and the claim of Scripture is that every person, deep down, wants to hold on to their right to go their own way, to see things their own way, and pursue their own life. And so what that means is, if you're set on a particular direction that you want to go, it means that you have to filter out the things that might tell you you're heading the wrong direction. You have to filter out the things that might tell you that you're on the wrong course. And so what ends up happening is we put up our own blinders, which is a form of self-blinding, self-denial, self-deception. And so there's a problem with this, okay? The problem is this. Everything that you can imagine to be believable, every belief is believable, but not every belief is livable. <laughs> you can choose to believe or come to believe anything you want in the world. Not every belief that you can hold in your head is actually livable in the real world. All right? And that you're, for instance, you can believe that you're Superman, and put, put the clothes on and the underwear on the outside and go up on the roof and, and, and believe in your heart that you can fly and jump off the roof. And unfortunately, it's not a belief that is practically livable within the laws of the universe that we inhabit, okay, without some additional help. <laughs> But in the same way, okay, there's, there's lots of beliefs in our culture, in our world that are perfectly, you're perfectly able to believe them, you're not able to actually live them out. For instance, you can, many people believe that all truth is relative, all morality is relative. That's a belief that you can, you can believe theoretically, you, you can provide arguments to, but I would argue it's not a belief that is practically livable. C.S. Lewis points out in the first chapter of of Mere Christianity that all you have to do is think of the last time, if if you want to hold to that belief, is think of the last time someone cut in front of you in line. Or you might say, well, all truth is relative, all morality is relative, but how do you feel when you're betrayed? Or when someone, when a spouse cheats on you, you, you discover the reality of a moral framework to the universe. And so the starting point that that we begin with as guides on this journey of, of the spiritual life is that Jesus gives us the only truth that is fully livable. If Jesus really is who he says he is, it means that his view of reality is the way things really are. And everything that he tells us, if he is really who he says he is, everything that he tells us is fully livable. Now, the annoying thing about truth is that it remains true even when you don't believe it. <laughs> and so the, the thing is, nobody can escape. Just like you can't escape the laws of gravity no matter what you believe about it, you can't escape the nature of reality even when you, don't, even when you want to. And so what happens is every person no matter their, their way of looking at things, every person, because we're made in the image of God and yet we're, we're, we're affected and broken by sin, we live in this tension between truth and falsehood, between our beliefs and the way things really are. And we live in this tension between these two. And you, you, can, you can think of them as two opposite poles. All right? So see if you can follow me on this, all right? Every person is living between, in this tension between these two poles, all right? Either they're living consistently with their own beliefs, and therefore they're further away from the reality of God, which produces a lot of friction, a lot of tension. And not many people go that way, because the further you go that way, the less livable your beliefs become. Yeah? Or you go the other way, and you live inconsistently with your beliefs, and therefore you're closer to the reality of God. But in that sense, almost everyone goes that way because there's a lot less friction. But what happens is you have to distract yourself from the fact that you're living inconsistently with what you say you believe. And so what happens is, that uh, calls it the, the, the pole of the dilemma or the pole of the di- Diversion. We have to divert ourselves from thinking of this tension that we live in. And so the way we do this is usually what you see in these conversations. The way that people distract themselves is either by being really, really good or being really, really bad. <laughs> so you see it with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is living in this tension between his professed beliefs and the truth that's embodied standing before him. And he distracts himself by turning to religion, by turning to his own goodness and his own ability to understand the scriptures. Or you have the woman at the well, um, who John is pointing out is living this life that is very far from consistent with her religious beliefs. And yet, um, she's actually closer to the reality of God. And so Nicodemus is running from the truth by being religious, by doing all the right things, and the woman at the well is running from the truth by just living inconsistently. Okay, so each of those things is is this, this will, willful diversion from the truth. But the question is, how do you persuade someone who's in that position? How do you persuade someone who not only does not believe, but will not believe, who's actively refusing to? Well, this is where I think it gets it gets really interesting because what Jesus shows us is these subversion tactics. This is where I I love how Jesus goes about his ministry. He's always subverting expectations. And there's two things here, two strategies. I call them well, they're, they're called turning the tables and triggering the signals. So the first one, Jesus persuades. By turning the tables. All right, and this is what you with Nicodemus. So, Nicodemus, this is, this is basically the negative tactic. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, You're a teacher from God. You must be, because otherwise you couldn't do all these things. So, Jesus says, Okay, I'm going to take you at your word, Nicodemus. This is what you believe. I'm a teacher sent from God. Let's run with that idea. What happens, Nicodemus? if we pursue that idea that you've just professed. He says, if that's true, and I really am a teacher from God, you should be willing to listen to whatever I have to say, right? So try this on. In order to even see the kingdom of God, let alone be a part of it, you have to be born again. How does that fit with your expectations, Nicodemus? (laughs) You won't believe that, will you, Nicodemus? Because... You've acknowledged me as teacher, but you actually believe that you're the teacher. You've, you believe that I'm sent from God, but you really you think you're God's gift to Israel. And so the problem is, according to your own beliefs, what you've just told me, Nicodemus, that can't be true. You can't possibly live consistently with your own beliefs, Nicodemus. Because by your own beliefs, no one can go up to heaven and reach God and save himself. The only way to hear from God is if he reaches down and reaches you to save you. And that's what you just said you believed I was. So why don't you believe me, Nicodemus? Don't you see there's more to the picture here? Don't you see that your will is involved in resisting me? And so Jesus flipped the script on him, right? Now, there's, there's an even clearer, more famous example of this in the Old Testament. If, if you've read the story of King David's life, and David had a famous, what would you call it, affair slash rape of Bathsheba, and, and hit it, brushed it under the carpet. And so the prophet Samuel goes and confronts him. And the way he does it is he, he, he tells a story. He says, there was, there was a poor man who had nothing to his name but this one precious little sheep. He loved this sheep. And a rich man came along and took this sheep, the only thing that he had, and this rich man already had everything he needed. David, isn't that horrible? David, don't you believe that's wrong? And David says, of course. Find me the man. He deserves to die. And Samuel says, well that's funny, David, because you're the man. You are the one. And so this is this is this is turning the tables, all right? This is basically the, the the negative path. It's listening to what people say they believe, it's taking it seriously, loving a person enough to take what they believe seriously, and walking with them down that road as far as it can go. And and Eventually, it will reach a stopping point. This is what Francis Schaeffer called finding the pressure points. Effectively, it's persuading someone to reconsider their path because it's not ultimately livable. It cannot hold together. It's pointing out the inconsistency between the the, the beliefs and the reality. All right? But there's a second strategy, which is what Jesus uses in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. All right? And so this, this is what I call triggering the signals. So this is the positive side of the coin. It's a strategy, not of pointing out what's inconsistent, but of looking at someone's beliefs and their desires and pointing out what is consistent with the truth, what is consistent with reality, and and walking with that. And so what Jesus does is he, he uses this occasion of them both seeking water at the well, and he uses it as an example To point her towards a deeper need. A deeper desire of her heart. He uses the physical thirst to point out to this this woman that there's something deeper in her that is thirsty for fulfillment. And he drives her to consider, why is that? Why do I have this desire within me? In other words, he takes what's true in what she believes... He takes what, what she can feel that is actually in line with reality, that points towards reality, and he takes it and, he, and he, he pushes it towards the conclusion. And so he's taking what's true in her beliefs and her reality, he pushes it towards what, what has to be its ultimate fulfillment. So for instance, we, we live in a society that's absolutely obsessed with, with love and relationships and there's this, there's this belief, if you look at our attitudes towards those things, I think there's this belief that basically if you can't get those things, we believe this is such a fulfillment of what we desire and what we're actually made to live for in life that if we don't get that, then it's, it's almost better not to live at all. That is the epitome of the fulfilled good life. And so anything less than that is not worth living for. But the question is, what would Jesus do with that longing? You can begin to ask, why is it that we feel that way? Why is it that our hearts yearn for love so deeply? Why is it that in a world where all good things come to an end, do we have this desire for some good thing that never comes to an end? How can we make sense of that, except as evidence that we were made for the love of a person that never comes to an end? And so, of course, anything less than that leaves us wanting more. No matter where we search for the fulfillment of that desire, no matter how high we get in our pursuit of that love and that desire, everything created, everything material in this universe ultimately leaves us wanting more. So the question is, why would we have that desire? C.S. Lewis, in the famous example, says, well, just because you want something doesn't mean you'll get it. But he says, wouldn't it be strange to feel thirst in a land where water doesn't exist? Doesn't our very yearning for that thing point us towards something that must be able to fulfill it? And so he says, if I can find nothing on this earth that will satisfy me, the best explanation is that I was made for another earth, another world. And so this is what I'm calling signals of transcendence. Transcendence meaning things that go beyond. And these are things all around us that we often express in in our deepest moments. We, We find them expressed in the arts. Expressions of these desires that don't make sense apart from being fulfilled in an eternal kind of love. And that's what Jesus is playing on in this conversation with the woman at the well. And essentially, I I, I love the way that Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, philosopher, put it. He said, take this as a a philosophy of, of sharing in the way that Jesus is sharing his, he says, people despise religion, they hate it, and afraid it might be true, and are afraid it might be true. The cure for this is to make people wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Make them wish it were true, and then show them that it is. And so, there's a couple things here, just practically, that we're going to finish with, of tactics that we see just using. So these are two big strategies and they're 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 big. And I just want to reiterate there's there's no formula here. This is not a one-time conversation unless you're the master himself probably. Most of the time, it's going to take several conversations. It's going to take a whole relationship to be able to draw these kinds of things out in conversation. And all of it has to be motivated by love. If we love people, part of that has to be a concern that they don't stay in wrong beliefs or or deception. And so the other thing to to remember is that if you're going to start pointing out inconsistencies between what people believe and what they live, you better be open to that kind of scrutiny in your own life as well. it's, It's a blade that cuts both ways. And so what this is about ultimately is... Yes, we do our best to to live up to our own beliefs, but we're on the journey too. And so we're not saying, hey, come follow me, I've got it all figured out. We're saying, come follow him because he has the words of eternal life. I'm not the one with the food. He's the one with the food. I'm just going to try and help you find him. (laughs) That's a big difference. When you realize that the truth of Christianity does not rest on your ability to live it out, it rests on him. And yes, we live it out in faithfulness to him. But ultimately, Jesus said, we give witness. We are witnesses not to ourselves, but to him. We testify not on our own behalf, but to him. And so, okay, we've got these two strategies, turning the tables and and triggering the signals. And they're both basically ways of showing people from within their own ways of thinking, using their own beliefs and and, and desires that it ultimately reaches a dead end, a stopping point. And when a person is able to see that, many times it can be just enough to jolt them off the track that they're on and consider whether they're going the right way. And so, we see three tactics that Jesus uses in this that I think are really helpful to bear in mind as big picture things that we can bring in that are conversational. They're not aggressive, they're not confrontational, and it all begins with listening. Okay, so there's three things, and I'm going to run through them really quickly. Three, three tactics that Jesus uses to subvert people's expectations, people's way of thinking, to open up a new possibility, all right? And the first one is reframing the picture. When you take a moment to listen to people's objections, if you ask someone, well, what is it that keeps you from believing in God? What, what Most of the time, what they will describe to you is a a kind of God that you don't believe in either. I don't believe in a God, and you can say, in that God. And I say, well, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Most of the time, what it takes is actually reframing the picture of who God is. And the key thing to realize is, I love how my friend Mike uh, Jarrell put it, that it's not just that Jesus looks like God, but that God looks like Jesus. If, you're, if your frame of mind about who God is, what, how he speaks, the kinds of things he does, if it doesn't match the character of Jesus, it needs reframing. It needs, it needs to be put into a different picture. And Jesus did that all the time. So providing a new frame. What if you thought of him like this? And that brings us to the second one, which is asking questions. All right? So reframing the understanding, and secondly, asking questions. Jesus asks hundreds of questions in the Gospels, and a lot of times, uh, this must have been really annoying to people, but he, he answers questions with questions. <laughs> Why does he do that? <laughs> because statements, if they're shocking, they can sometimes be a light bulb moment, but most of, most of the time, statements, they're, they're, they're like a take it or leave it thing, all right? Questions are different. Questions actually involve the listener. A good question works on the listener and actually forces them to wrestle with it, to to engage with it. And so a lot of times if a person is closed to a statement, they're still open to a a well-crafted question. And a well-crafted question isn't obvious. It doesn't give the answer away in the asking it has some, some ambiguity in that sense. And just learn from Jesus. He's the master at asking these questions. God, the Father, asking questions all the way. God knew. <laughs> Three, Adam, where are you? God knew. <laughs> He's involving Adam in, in, in reckoning with where he actually is. And so we have reframing the picture. We have asking questions. And then thirdly, by telling stories. Now, this is even more indirect. Jesus is constantly telling parables through the Gospels, right? And even in these conversations with Nicodemus and and the woman at the well, he uses narrative tactics. So Nicodemus, he mentions, he says, just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, right? He's referring back to a a relatively obscure story in in the book of Numbers um, to paint this picture, And so, to the woman at the well, he uses more of an object lesson. It's a little more dramatic. He's using the well and the water itself as a dramatic narrative device. And so, stories are like questions in that they're indirect, they involve you, but that there's an added element to it, which is that they engage your imagination. Stories engage your imagination. And so, this is why stories and art and song, when they're done well... They can actually be a way to access even the hardest hearts, the most closed minds. And many times in history is actually whole societies have shifted in the way they think, not even through reframing, not even through questions, but through a piece of art. So America was massively influenced by this novel in the mid-1800s called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And many people who found themselves completely, didn't care about the question of slavery in reading that book, it shifted the mentality. And so that's happened a number of times with, with songs, with, with novels and pieces of writing. And so, asking questions, telling st- Reframing, asking questions, telling stories. Telling your own story, actually, can be incredibly powerful. I remember a time when I was, I was, I was leading in a, a discussion with a bunch of non-Christians, and, and we got onto the topic of prayer. And one by one, they were going around saying, yeah, prayer is a bunch of garbage, doesn't work. I prayed for my friend, and nothing happened. I prayed for my friend who was sick, and they ended up dying. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, by the way, this was in Oxford. Everyone was incredibly smart and way more, way more studied than I was. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, my goodness, what do I do here? <laughs> and I'm trying to think of, like, what's this amazing way that I can turn the tables? What's this, like, amazing question that I can come up with that's just going to stop them in their tracks? And God just whispered to me, just tell them the story. And it was a story of a friend of mine who, I've, I've told it before, so I won't repeat it, but a friend of mine who was intending to, to kill himself, and, and I prayed for him, and God answered my prayer. And just in the power of telling that story, in testifying to the power of Jesus, it shifted the whole mood of the conversation. And you know what? I'm not putting it down to that one moment, but several of those people in that conversation ended up following Jesus. And I hope they still are today. So just to encourage you that this this is an art, that we learn over time. It's not a science. It's not a technique. It's not a method. It's not a formula. It's an art of loving people, of pointing to Jesus with our stories, with our questions, with reframing, with with finding ways to walk with them as far as their beliefs will take them and say, you know what? At this stopping point, when you can go no further, it's Jesus the one you're looking for. Jesus is the one you're looking for that will fulfill those desires of your heart like nothing else can. And so, ultimately, this comes down to Jesus inviting us to follow his way. And so, I I just want to end here. I'll invite the musicians back up, and we we can close with a song. But um, it's somewhat acceptable and trendy these days to be a seeker, as long as you never claim to be a finder. (laughs) What I want to encourage you is that You don't have to be a seeker all your life. Jesus is inviting you, hey, come follow me and find out if this is really true. The only way that you can discover the reality of whether or not he is trustworthy, of whether or not he really is who he says he is, is to commit your trust to him. And say, Jesus, I don't know about all this, but I'm going to take a chance on you. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to find out the truth of what you say. And I will testify to anyone who is in that place where they're seeking, where they're wondering, he can be trusted. And he won't leave you, he won't forsake you. And we're still journeying. We never get to the end of the journey in this life, but so this is not the end of the journey when you meet Jesus. In fact, it's the beginning of the greatest journey ever. But you're walking with Him, and so if that's if, if if that is you this morning, and you say, you know what, this morning I am I am seeking something. I do feel that 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 hunger for something different. I'm wondering if I want if I am going the right way. Jesus is inviting you right now. Come to me. All you who are weary, who are heavy burdened, who don't know your way, and I will give you rest. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that you were made for. And you can enter into that relationship with him to follow him this morning simply by prayer, which is talking to him and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for going my own way. I'm so sorry for blinding myself. Jesus, I want to turn to you this morning. I want to repent from my own sin and trust you today. Jesus, thank you that you loved me so much, that you came after me, that you were willing to die for me, that you resurrected so I could have new life. And Jesus, I want to follow you today. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person. I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. You can put that in your own words. There's no magic formula of words. Just give yourself to him. So Father, we thank you for uh, your gift of Jesus. Lord, we thank you on this Thanksgiving week for your love for us. Lord, that you were not content to let us walk our own ways into self-destruction, but you chased us down the road and met us. So Lord Jesus, would you as we as we hear these these words, we look at your example, Lord, would you inspire us? Would you open up opportunities these holidays to, to have meaningful conversations with friends, with family, with coworkers, with neighbors? Lord, and as we do, would you just plant questions in our hearts? Would you plant corrective ways to bring a, a truer picture of your heart and who you are to people who are misinformed. And Lord, would you remind us of the stories of your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord, that we would be able to testify to your love, your goodness, and your salvation, we pray. Fill us and anoint us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info,